Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. What do you think when you hear the phrase, future foods? Ahead on Seasoned, we're spending the hour answering the question, how might we eat in the future? Later in the show, we talk with Amy Chen of Upside Foods, a food technology company in California aiming to bring cultivated chicken to your dinner table. We all know farm to table. Well, this is lab to table. Real chicken made from chicken cells. It's fascinating stuff. We also talk with Chase Purdy, the author of Billion Dollar Burger, about the business of cultivated meat. And then Chef Plum treats our producer to grasshopper tacos, because why not? But first, alternative proteins, like (laughs) those grasshoppers, are very much a food of the present. But scientists are working to make better versions of plant-based eggs and seafood and, you guessed it, meat. You know, like those Impossible and Beyond Burgers. Our first guest is Dr. Julian McClements. He's a distinguished professor of food science at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. His research at UMass includes how to make plant-based protein cheaper, tastier, and healthier. And his book is called Future Foods, How Modern Science is Transforming the Way We Eat. We talk with Julian about his work. Yeah, so we've got a lot of projects on plant-based foods. So we're looking on plant-based meat, plant-based seafood, plant-based eggs, and plant-based milk. And we're really interested in the sort of fundamental science behind it. So looking at the sort of the physics and chemistry of the different ingredients involved and then how you so how you use plant-based ingredients and you assemble them into something that looks, feels and tastes like, you know, a real meat or egg or dairy product. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. Julian, how did you find this particular discipline of science? What drew you to this? Well, I've always loved science since I was a kid. I think my uncle was a food technologist and he was really into science and he used to buy all these encyclopedias. So I used to just sit as a kid in Northern England where it always rained. So you had a lot of days, like afternoons reading this stuff. Uh, So I just got really interested in science and I really wanted to apply it to something that was practical. Um, And I think food is, you know, it really affects everyone's life. It affects, you know, your, your enjoyment of life, your health, it affects the planetary health. So it it has a huge impact and food's incredibly complicated materials. You could spend your whole lifetime studying like an egg probably and and only get to the shell. It's such a fascinating, interesting area. Can you describe for us the definition of a plant-based food? Yeah, I think it depends who you talk to. I think, you know, traditionally it would have been like fruits and vegetables. But I think now we've got this what we call like next generation plant-based foods. So this is where you're trying to make a, a product that accurately simulates the desirable characteristics of a, you know, a real animal product. So like a hamburger or a sausage or a piece of chicken or a, a scallop or a whatever other kind of product you want to eat. And what's really challenging about this is that, you know, if you look at the proteins from plants, if you could scale them up a million times, it would look like little peas. So the little spheres. But if you look at them from sort of meat and fish, they look like spaghetti. You know, they're like long fibers that are bundled together. So somehow you have to try and put these little peas together to make something that looks like spaghetti. 
So a lot of the challenges we have is using like food nanotechnology and what's called soft matter physics to try and assemble plant ingredients into these structures that mimic what's inside an animal product. How do you go about doing that? So how do you, I don't know where you start, but I will end with, I will go to my grocery store or there are even places now that are fast service restaurants and I can get a plant-based burger walk me from i have that plant-based burger in my hands where was it born yeah so it was started in a field somewhere so you know soybeans might be in there or some peas or some uh, other kinds of legumes might be in there so you grow the plant and then you have to isolate the protein from it so you just have to break down the plant structure and then you separate it into different ingredients like the starch and the, the fat and the proteins you would mix them together in the right combination and you would control all the conditions. Uh, And we use something called like food architecture, where you understand the individual ingredients, you know, what their shape is, what they look like, how they glue together. And that sort of builds up the the kind of structure that you're you're interested in. So, Julian, one of the first shows we ever recorded was about how us in this country might eat less meat as part of a more climate-friendly diet. But meat eating is increasing. It's not decreasing all around the world. Why is that? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I was just reading an article this morning from um, an Australian group, and they were saying that in rich countries, so if uh, GDP was above $40,000, that there actually reached peak meat already, so that as more and more consumers trying to switch to a more plant-based diet, but in lots of other developing countries, I think eating meat is still seen as a you know a good source of nutrition and a good status symbol, so more people are eating meat. I mean, it is. I mean, it's full of nutrients and it's full of calories. It's, you know, it can be really good for you, especially if you didn't have it in the past. I love the term peak meat. <laughs> yeah. Worldwide, on average, it's still increasing. But I think it, it's going to go down. And I think what will make it go down is the availability of more products, which have got better quality, better nutritional profile, better for the environment. And especially, I think I've just seen so many young people they really want to do research in it. And they're really passionate about eating plant-based foods to try and improve the sustainability of the food supply. Are we gearing these products towards the general consumer? Are we gearing them towards meat eaters? Or are we gearing them towards vegetarian people or vegan people? Yeah, well, I think by far the biggest market is meat eaters. You know, I think over 90% of people in the country, in most countries, are still, you know, passionate meat eaters. So I think that's where all these big companies are targeting is, how do we get more meat eaters to eat less meat and eat more plant-based foods? And I think that's where you're going to have the biggest impact. I eat everything in full transparency, but I have tried to eat plant-based burgers. I don't necessarily like the way they taste, but I, I, you know, I go back for a second or a third. But I think that in trying to figure out like, okay, let me try a plant-based burger, part of that decision was I wanted to be healthier. And I think that folks who make this stark delineation of, all right, I'm no longer going to eat animal products. I want to have a cleaner lifestyle. They think, all right, let's go a 180 and let me do plant-based everything. Are plant-based proteins necessarily healthier? Yeah, and I think there's been some interesting articles from a professor in um, Harvard Medical School, so Professor Hu. So he's done a lot of research on this idea of a a healthy and an unhealthy plant-based diet. So if you just eat lots of you know, plant-based burgers and fries and cakes and baked goods, it's going to be really bad for your health. 
But if you eat, you know, lots of sort of fresh fruits and vegetables and you have the occasional plant-based burger or you have tofu and stuff, then that could be really good for your health. So I think it depends on the kind of plant-based diet that you eat. So I think at the moment, the main reason for eating plant-based foods is ethical or sustainability. Uh, I think health is probably quite similar between the plant-based and the meat-based at the moment. But I think that's a work in progress. That's some of the science we're working on at the moment is how to make the next generation of plant-based foods healthier. You mentioned in the top eggs and dairy and fish. What are some of the challenges that you come into when you're trying to, I don't know, recreate like an egg? Yeah, I think each kind of plant-based food is really unique. You know, if you're doing it like a milk, it has to be sort of a creamy fluid, you know, sort of behaves in your mouth in a certain way. If you're doing an egg, it has to be something that when you heat it, it, it sort of forms a gel around 65, 70 degrees C. And every kind of protein will unfold and aggregate and form a gel at different temperatures. So we've just done a lot of work recently, like screening different kinds of plant-based proteins to find out which is the best one that most closely mimics the proteins in egg that give it that characteristic gel behavior. When you say the proteins in plants, is it a particular plant? Can you say, oh, well, the fern helps make a great egg? I mean, obviously, I'm asking a question like a fifth grader, but I guess, how do you begin? Yeah, there's all sorts of different plants. I mean, you could use soy proteins or pea proteins or bean proteins. And recently, we use this one, like a duckweed protein. So duckweed is this, this like plant that grows on the top of water and it's very sustainable, produces in really large numbers and it's easy to extract the proteins from them. And if you make it, you've made some plant-based eggs, which look very, very similar to real eggs. You know, they scramble just like them. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Science is cool. <laughs> I'm suddenly now surveying every body of water I've passed in the last week to see what plant grows on it. And I'll never look at an egg the same way again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, recently, uh, my, some of my students made these uh, plant-based scallops. And, you know, they look almost identical to real scallops. We took a photograph of them. We, like, plated them out. And you couldn't tell the difference between the plant-based ones and the real ones. You know, they've got the same size, shape, the color. Wow. Actually, these were made from pea protein and orange polysaccharides. So just from peas and oranges, you could make something that looked exactly like scallop. How's it taste? Like peas and oranges? We're not sure at the moment because of COVID, we haven't been able to do the taste test. We have to run these sensory analysis. So as soon as that's over, that's the next thing we need to do. I've always been concerned as a chef about things as as beyond meat, the impossible burger, things like that. Is there any chance you could just talk us through the evolution of that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the professor who started, um, I think it was Impossible Foods. I mean, he was a professor at Stanford University doing really fundamental biology work. And he was really famous. And he's, I think, passionate, you know, about the sustainability of the planet. He really wanted to take his science and use it to make these products that were going to have a tangible effect on sustainability in the environment. So that's why he started this company. And it went from, you know, nothing to a $4 billion company in 10 years or something like that. There's lots of really passionate scientists who really, really care about the environment. And they think this is a really tangible way you can change that. So that's, that's what's exciting to me is just seeing all the, all the passion in this area. So in your book, Future Foods, you say many people want foods that look, feel, and taste like animal products, but are made from something else. Uh, the creation of desirable meat alternatives depends on first understanding what makes meat products taste so delicious. So begs the question, what exactly is it about meat that makes it delicious? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think it's, you know, partly intrinsic to what meat is, but I think it's partly cultural, you know, like you've been brought up with it. A lot of my memories about meat are from like staying with my granny in, in North Yorkshire. You know, she used to cook me roast beef and Yorkshire puddings and all the vegetables and stuff. 
And I have really fond memories of that. And I associate that smell with those nice times in my life or when my mother was doing the Sunday dinner. So I think a lot of it's historical and psychological. But, you know, there is something intrinsic about meat as well. I and mean, maybe it's hardwired into our evolution is um, there's a certain smell and a certain texture when you eat it as well. Can we shift to instead of plant based proteins insects because um, for an earlier episode <clears throat> we talked to a forager uh, Bun Lai and you know this idea about Americans embracing more insects as protein as part of their diet where do you stand on this what are your thoughts on that yeah I, mean, I think if you look at the you know around the world already there's over two billion people will regularly consume insects as part of the diet so I think it's only in a lot of the developed countries that we're, we're just not used to eating insects and they've got a really good um, sort of fat. They've got really healthy lipids in them. They've got good protein source. They've got lots of vitamins and minerals. They've got good dietary fiber. So from a health point of view, they're actually probably a lot better for you than, than meat um, if you get the right insects. So I think a lot of it's just a cultural thing. It's getting over that adversity. But I think I, I use an example in that book is like if you looked at like lobsters two or 300 years ago, you know, that was just a, a product nobody wanted to eat. No, for me, it's like a giant cockroach from the ocean and I would never touch it anyway. But people are familiar with it now and they'll pay loads of money from it, you know. Have you eaten insects? Yes, I think I, I, I took some into um, my daughter's class. I, I taught a, a class for future foods when she was in high school and I, I brought two snacks in and I put them behind my back and I said, you know, one of these is going to be really bad for your health and give you, might give you heart disease and diabetes and the other one's going to be really healthy for you. Which one do you want? They all said, oh, well, I love the healthy one. So I brought out like the, the, the fried crickets <laughs> and then the other one was like the potato chips and they were really good sports. They all tried them. There, there wasn't much of a yuck factor. What made you choose the cricket? Are there insects that are more acceptable, you think, to the to the human palate? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I tried them and they were, I didn't like them. It was like, they were just, I had their little legs were stuck in my teeth for, for hours afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one good thing is it, it stops overeating. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, if you've got a... <laughs> If you've got bags and bags of insects in your in your pantry, they'll probably be there for a few months. <laughs> <laughs> I have a chef friend who actually uses a lot of insect flowers. Do you think that might be a kind of a gateway into easing the, the, the culture into eating bugs? Yeah, definitely. I think you can, you know, grind these insects down and you can create flowers or proteins, ex extract them and make anything. You can make eggs out of them or cakes or whatever you want. I think probably much better looking at a cereal bar than looking at, you know, an insect in the face when you're trying to eat it. Yeah. I think it'd be a toss up for me, Marisol, if it's going to be the Impossible Burger or the Bugs. I'm not sure which one I'd, I'd eat. I don't know. Yeah, I'd go for the Impossible Burger. <laughs> do you like Impossible Burgers, Julian? Do you, do you like the taste? Do you find that you can digest them? Yeah, and we've been vegetarians, I don't know, so six or seven years now. My daughter went vegetarian, so we went vegetarian just for convenience and we've kept to it. So I, I can't even remember what a real burger tastes like, but you know, the impossible and beyond, uh, you know, they seem like reasonable facsimiles to me. I mean, I wouldn't eat them all the time, but occasionally I'll have them. So yeah, I, I was never a big fan of beef burgers, hamburgers anyway. So Julian, what are some food innovations that make you the most excited right now that are coming soon? I mean, I got a feeling that we're still pretty far out from getting those uh, scallops we were talking about, but is anything right, up, right around the corner? Yeah, I think a lot of, on the plant-based food area, I think a lot of it would be that that next generation of, you know, can you make something that looks exactly like chicken or, you know, roast beef or pork chops? 
Uh, I mean, something we're working on and a lot of other companies are making on are the, are the 3D printed meat. So like we have a 3D printer in our lab and we're like printing sort of meat products using plant proteins uh, as an ink from it. And there's some companies have already got commercial products on the market using that kind of technology. That's straight up like some futuristic, the Jetson stuff where you press the button and you select what kind of food you want and it comes out of the machine. Yeah. Well, that's what we hope is like, you know, you're at work, you get your iPhone out, you select a picture of what you want to eat press the button and then as you're driving home the 3d printer starts it puts all these different ingredients together and you've got exactly the food you want so it's like watching star trek don't get rid of my job now come on <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> a friend of mine for for the holidays got her husband this ai oven where you put a food item in and it identifies what it is and it programs it and it identified chicken tenders and pizza but it could not identify a latka or an empanada Oh, interesting. So I've got to send it to diversity school because clearly <laughs> this thing doesn't, doesn't know. Yeah. So what innovations do you think we will see in the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, I think some of the big areas will be things like personalized nutrition is where, you know, a food is actually designed for you in particular. Like everybody's different. We've all got different lifestyles and different microbiomes like different kind of bacteria that live in our guts we've all got different metabolisms so a food that might be good for my health might be not good for somebody else's health so if you've got propensity for heart disease or diabetes or obesity or something like that if you can do like a scan of your dna and of your microbiome then people can tailor foods for your particular dietary needs so sort of an individualized diet Companies are already doing that where you can, you know, send a sample of your poop off and a swab of your saliva, and then they'll do like a DNA analysis to get your whole genetic profile. And then they'll search for specific genes that might lead to certain diseases, or they'll look at your microbiome and then they'll come back with some nutritional advice. And it'll almost always be eat less, eat more plant-based foods. So you could save yourself a few hundred dollars just by doing that. Wow, this feels so much like Jurassic Park a little bit. Next thing you know, we're all going to be perfect looking because we're eating great. No one's going to be fat anymore. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think the Jurassic Park thing is like the cultured meat where, you know, you, you could do it with yourself. You could take one of your cells from your arm and you could grow up a sort of chef burger from, you, from yourself. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. I mean, they're already doing that. You can Singapore, you can buy... Um, cultured chicken so it's like they've taken a cell from a living chicken and then they've grown it into um chicken meat in in a wow. fermentation tank yeah and then you you can you can buy that i think after this conversation marcel i might think about being vegetarian when he said we could take some of my dna and make chef plum burgers <laughs> that, that, might that, be that might something be something else that might be it <laughs> i wonder if they're tasty yeah of course they're tasty come on come on <laughs> i'm sure they are i'm sure they are yeah I suppose it's delicious. Spicy up in there. Yeah. nectar of the gods that's what we call it right <laughs> of course well julian thank you so much for joining us we appreciate your insight and your time yeah well thank you very much for having me really enjoyed it that was dr julian mcclements he's a distinguished professor of food science at umass amherst later in the hour we talk to the author of the book billion dollar burger about the business of cultured meat. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, the availability of cultured chicken in the United States, my friends, is on the horizon. We talk to the COO of a company making it right now. We essentially allow the cells to do their magic. They grow into meat. We harvest it, formulate it, and then we eat it. And it's uh, delicious and just as amazing as the meat that you've always had. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're exploring the future of food in this episode. Just before the break, our first guest, food scientist Julian McClements, mentioned cultured meat. It's also called cell-cultured or cultivated meat. It's new enough that the industry hasn't settled on one universally accepted term for the meat that's grown and harvested from animal cells. Our next guest is Amy Chen. Amy is the chief operating officer of Upside Foods. It's a food technology company making cultivated meat out in Berkeley, California. Chef Plum spoke with her last week. Amy Chen, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you so much. It's great to be here today. We have a pretty good understanding of what plant-based meats are. Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat, they're pretty mainstream. Beyond Fried Chicken, in fact, just landed at every Kentucky Fried Chicken at the beginning of 2022. Can you help us understand how cultivated meat is different than plant-based meat? It's a great question, Chef Plum, and one we get a lot. So cultivated meat is actual real meat that's grown directly from animal cells. So you get the real meat that you've always loved. It's not a plant-based or a vegan or vegetarian alternative, but it's the meat you love made in a more humane and sustainable way. Essentially what we do is we start with a healthy livestock animal. So think a chicken or a cow. Uh, We take a sample of cells. We feed it um, nutrients, vitamins, a lot of the same foods that it would normally get inside the animal's bodies, but we do it in a clean environment. Um, And then we essentially allow the cells to do their magic. They grow into meat. We harvest it, formulate it, and then we eat it. And it's uh, delicious and just as amazing as the meat that you've always had. And I definitely, as the chef me, I want to get into the delicious part of it. But I want to know a little bit more about the company's mission. What's driving Upside Foods? Our mission, we like to say, is making our favorite food a force for good. And one of the things that we are really clear on is that people love meat. Um, And I am from Texas, so I can vouch very strongly for the passion that people have for meat and the really critical and central role that it plays in our culture and our traditions. Um, So we know people love meat and they don't always want to make the compromises that are required in changing their habits. Uh, But we also know increasingly that the impact that meat and the agricultural and meat production system has on the world is not a great one. Um, And when you think about meat demand, um, there's some estimates out there that say the demand for meat will more than double in the next couple of decades. Um, And then you think about a system that is already consuming up to one sixth of the total greenhouse gases or emitting one sixth of the greenhouse gases in the world. It's one third of the arable land and water. Um, This is not a sustainable system. So our mission is really around letting people have the meat that they love, um, but doing so and creating it in a way that's better for the environment um, and better for animals. You actually encourage people to come and tour the facility where your engineers and scientists actually cultivate the meat. Why is transparency a priority? I mean, years ago, people wouldn't have 
welcomed anybody or an alternative meat into facilities. You know, they want anybody seeing what they're doing. Um, lots of innovation on that stuff is kind of kept pretty secret. So what makes you guys want to be so transparent? No, absolutely. I uh, grew up professionally speaking in the food world. And so I know that food is so central to who we are. It's important that it's delicious and craveable, but also that it's familiar. And, and we know that the idea of cultivating meat from animal cells can at first blush maybe sound a little bit scary um, or a little bit unfamiliar. So a lot of what we're hoping to do is to help educate consumers and demystify the process. For example, if you come into our facility, which we call EPIC, our Engineering Production and Innovation Center in Emeryville, California, you'll see lots of stainless steel tanks. You'll see a very clean environment, something that feels very comfortable. And if you've been in a brewery before um, or a winery, it might start feeling like, oh, I actually have seen this before. And I could understand that this is a way that meat or food could be made um, in a way that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, I guess so. We all like beer, right? It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> beer and fried chicken, maybe? Oh, count me in. It's been really interesting. Uh, when you actually, we've done a lot of consumer insights and talked to folks um, who love food. The first blush, they're, they're not exactly sure what this is. Um, but the more that you tell them, the more we know that people are really excited about it. And they can start imagining and seeing how this can fit into their lives. Um, and of course, there's nothing like actually tasting the product. Um, this is truly one where tasting is believing. So we hope to be able to do that very soon. Speaking of that, when might we be eating cultured meat in the United States? I mean, the future is now, right? Absolutely. Um, the first step for us is getting regulatory approval. Um, so like any food product, it needs to go through a full evaluation to make sure that the regulators, in this case, the Food and Drug Administration, and then the U.S. Department of Agriculture kind of understand the process, have visibility to what we're doing, and are able to declare that it's really safe. Um, so we're waiting for that first stage of regulatory approval, and then we'll start uh, rolling from there. So how long does it, and this is a little bit sciencey, but it's just my chef brain, I'm curious how long it takes to go from like a few microscopic cells to here's some meat to eat. Do you have a guess? Yeah, can I, right, let me guess. Uh, yeah. Nine weeks? No, so it only takes about two or three weeks. What? Um, and so what's amazing, this is where it gets really amazing. And I love this. Think about how long it takes to grow a chicken or a pig or a cow, right? It's on the orders okay. of months or even years. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can make that same process happen in the environment, um, like an epic facility that we have in the course of literally weeks. So you can start from that single cell to a delicious chicken filet or a chicken sausage or a fried chicken sandwich. It's pretty amazing. So we're saying chicken filet. Uh, so is it look like a ground product or is it more of like a, I mean, I, I'm trying to understand what it looks like. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we actually have the capability of making a full suite of different kinds of meat products. So our vision is to be able to produce any meat product that you love, uh, whether it's a steak or a chicken breast or a burger or a sausage. Um, so we're working across all of those. So if you come to our test kitchens on any given day, you might see a chicken breast, you might see a sausage or a burger. Um, but pretty much any food form that uh, you can imagine our technology can make. Amy, you have the coolest job I've ever heard in my life. This is awesome. This is I think cool so, too. Thing. Yeah, this is <laughs> such a cool thing. Hey, what are some barriers getting like a cultured fried chicken sandwich into the hands of everyday people? I know you guys are working to clear some of those. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about regulatory approval already. Um, the next real stage is building up the infrastructure. So we have our Epic facility that we just opened up in November that can produce 50,000 pounds at the outset, can be expanded up to 400,000 pounds. Uh, but we really have a lot of work to do, not only as a company, but as an industry in scaling all of the production infrastructure, the supply chain, uh, all the various pieces of 
bringing that to market. So that's a lot of the work that is ahead of us. Is the plan to eventually get to where we can take the place of traditional farming when it comes to these type of proteins? You know, I think when you think about the demand um, and this idea that it's going to double in the next couple of decades, I think the two will coexist for a really long time. And frankly, I imagine a really robust ecosystem where you will probably have traditional conventionally grown meat, um, cultivated meat, and maybe even plant-based alternatives living side by side in a really symbiotic way. So I think the pie is big enough for all, um, but certainly we hope that we will be able to capture a lot of um, folks who love meat, but haven't loved the way it's made. And then this could be a, a really powerful choice and a meaningful alternative for them. Uh, what about people who talk about, and this is such a weird question, but it's the world that we live in now, who talk about, you know, ah, oh, we want free range meat. We want organic meat. I mean, you can almost, I mean, could you consider this organic? I guess you could, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, here's the really interesting thing. So we can produce our meat without any added antibiotics, without any of the things that we are worried about. Um, and think about foodborne illnesses. I mean, this is not one that we like to think about a lot, but there's millions and millions of Americans who get sick every year from things like E. coli or salmonella. And um, because our meat is actually grown in a really clean environment, it essentially eliminates the risk of any of those issues. I love it. Um, and here's where it gets even more neat. Um, so here's the geeky science part, um, which we're just starting to scratch the surface of. Um, because we can actually grow meat from the cells that we select, um, you can eventually grow a steak that has the nutritional profile of salmon. All right. And we can start thinking about all of the nutritional and health benefits of different kinds of meats and profiles and, and start designing that in as well. Okay. Hang on, Amy. I got I to gotta digest that for a second. Would it taste like salmon? Would it be salmon or would it be a steak that has the same, like it would be like a ribeye steak, but it has the same nutritional value as like a piece of salmon? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's a it's a pretty crazy kind of blow your mind concept, but absolutely. I mean, I think once we, uh, so to speak, are able to take the animal out of the production system, it opens up a lot of possibilities. Uh, but we can also produce the the chicken that you've always loved in just the way you've always loved it. So I don't want to get ahead of myself. I think we've got a, a good amount of work to do, but uh, the potential is really quite limitless. So is the main focus currently on let's get chicken right first? It is. You know, we always joke. One of the, the funny things is when we come and have people taste our product, there's this magical moment that we like to say of people like putting into their mouths for the first time a piece of chicken that didn't require the slaughter and raising of an animal. And everybody watches. It's this very funny moment. They put it into their mouth. They chew. There's kind of a smile and then a little laugh. And we think, what do you think? It tastes like chicken. <laughs> and so the old adage holds. Uh, but chicken is the most consumed meat in America uh, and soon to be one of the most consumed in the world. And it does have that sort of universal familiarity. So as we go back and we talked a little bit earlier about educating consumers and getting consumers to feel comfortable with a new technology and a new way of making meat, we thought it was really perfect to start with something that everybody knows and loves. Um, and that's a nice on-ramp for everybody to understand what cultivated meat can do and how it can play a role in their lives. One of the criticisms that we hear about is, is how it, maybe it's not so great for the climate or it's not climate friendly. Can you respond to that? Yeah, there's um, the actual one of the really compelling reasons for cultivated meat to exist is that it is much better for the environment and better for the world. So I rattled off some of the stats earlier on about conventional meat um, and the inefficiencies of the system. And cultivated meat has the promise to really significantly reduce that. Um, and so there have been some studies that have said that cultivated meat could be as much as you know 90 percent reduction in some of the overall environmental impact um, that traditional meat has, particularly when you compare it to a species like beef. Um, and then you think about the animal welfare component that we didn't talk about a lot. 
There's a staggering 70 to 80 billion animals, just land animals alone that are slaughtered every year for meat. Um, and so while we might love our meat, I think we could all be much happier um, and sleep better at night if we knew that the meat that we loved um, didn't involve that kind of pain and suffering. What about the cost now? Because obviously, as you start to mass produce things, you can lower the cost for everyday consumers. But is that cost going to be kind of in the same frame, you think? I mean, this, this is all like hypothetical, I get it. But I'm just curious because I hear these things, I think of it, that's going to be expensive. Yeah, I would say at the outset, it's going to be priced. Um, if you think about the premium that organic or free range and some of those things, it'll be priced a little bit above that. Um, and I think over time, as we talk about the scale and building the infrastructure and the ecosystem, uh, it will definitely come down. We've already been able to reduce the, the cost of our product by you know thousands of times. And so we're continuing to march and really focus on that because we know that the cost and the accessibility of the product is ultimately going to matter a lot in terms of people's ability to access it and for it to play a meaningful impact in the world. There's a lot of countries now actually around the world when you think about um, water scarcity um, and even sort of food security issues um, that are thinking about this technology as a way to make sure that they can feed their populations in a sustainable way, even if they don't have necessarily the same amount of access to water or land that's required for conventional agriculture. So absolutely, um, in my heart of hearts, long-term, I, I hope that we mature as an industry to a point where it can make a meaningful impact. That would be incredible. How about vegetables? I know we're talking meats, but can we eventually get to where we're doing with this with vegetables? You know, it's a funny question. I guess at this point, I would say you probably just grow the vegetables in the ground. and It's a pretty good solution. Um, <laughs> there's lots of vertical farming and other options, too. So we'll probably focus on meat for a while before we get there. But it's a good thought. I'd just be cool to have one giant carrot. <laughs> one of those, those, those vats would be incredible. One carrot to rule them all. <laughs> That's right. I that's right. Uh, so Upside has a list of notable supporters. I mean, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Tyson and Whole Foods are investors. Upside is working with three-star Michelin chef Dominique Crenn as well, which is pretty interesting. How have chefs that you've worked with helped cultured meat evolve into something that's delicious and not just something that's successful from a scientific standpoint? Because it's got to taste good. Absolutely. Um, and you're a chef yourself, so you would appreciate this. I think Chef Kren has been a real inspiration for our team um, from the first time she walked into our kitchen um, and just reminded us always and often that food is food. Yeah. Um, and she's got an incredible story. I mean, I think for her, one of the things that was really exciting for us is a couple of years ago, she decided to take meat off the menu because she didn't like the way it was made. Um, and after having a series of conversations with us, she said, this is the only kind of meat that I would put back on my menu because it's meat that I can feel good about. Um, and so from a mission perspective, we loved it. But then, you know, she had the second thought, which is, and by the way, it better be delicious um, and it better be amazing. Um, and let's really push the ways that we think about what food can be. And so she's challenged us to think bigger, to think more expansively. Um, if you imagine... I'll just give you an example. A chicken breast is shaped in the way of a chicken breast because it has to grow in a chicken. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that Chef Kren has challenged us is like, well, if you can grow it in a cultivator, does it have to be the same shape? Could we imagine food forms that have never been? And so it's been a really fun thing to work alongside someone like her who just feels food in a wholly different way and to make sure that is front and center to how we think about the next chapter for Upside, um, that it is food first and foremost and that it is powered by incredible science that's going to change the world. I think the inspiration for that was dinosaur nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> a childhood favorite for all of us. That's right. Amy, thank you so much for your time. This is so fascinating and interesting. Uh, I wish you guys the best of luck and I can't wait to see this make it into the mainstream with everybody. 
Thank you so much, Chef Plum. And hopefully if your travels at some point bring you out west to California, we'd love to welcome you to our Epic facility so you can see it firsthand. Oh, be careful what you wish for. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amy. Love it. Take care. That was Amy Chen. She's the COO of Upside Foods in California. If you want to know more, we'll have a link on our website, ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we talk to the author of Billion Dollar Burger. And in the spirit of experimentation, I invite our producer Robin over to my house for some grasshopper tacos. There's crunchiness in my mouth. It wasn't the most delicious thing I've ever had. It also wasn't the worst thing I've ever tasted. I'm taking orders. You know you want one. (laughs) You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We just learned about the food innovation of cultivating real chicken you can eat from the cells of birds still scratching out in the yard. Our next guest is Chase Purdy. He's a journalist and writer who knows quite a bit about cultivated meat. He's the author of Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. It was published in 2020. We talk with Chase about how far the cultured meat industry has come over the last decade. In 2018, Chase was able to tour multiple facilities and taste cultured meat. He describes that experience. I mean, this field has really advanced a lot since that first sentence that I wrote. But at the time, it was this really incredible moment for me to be able to finally, after a lot of reading and a lot of conversations, to sit down and to not just look at, touch, not just have talked about to me, but to interact with and eat and take a bite of and to taste what at the time was an extremely expensive example of where scientists have gotten in terms of growing meat in a laboratory setting. And at the time it was super expensive because the manpower, just sort of the process of extracting a cell and the time it takes to get it to replicate at that time, it was just an extremely expensive process. And so to sit down to finally sort of in a weird way of putting it eat this example of human ingenuity was just sort of like this incredible experience and proof that we can do something that I had read at the time so much about. I think more people had walked on the moon or been to space than like had actually sat down and taken a bite of cell cultured meat. And so it was sort of this moment of like, wow, this is like a really privileged place to be in this time and tasting something that has so much sort of promise when it comes to tackling big issues like climate change or reducing the amount of animal suffering happening in the world due to slaughtering them for food. So it was just a crazy moment for me personally. Now, like how much progress or should we have made more progress by now or is the progress where it should be? What do you think? Well, that was that was more in, more in 2018. So it wasn't that long ago. And the progress they made has been tremendous. I mean, you are you're talking at that point. Yeah, it was like the patty was sort of about a $300,000 chunk of meat. I was just reading a couple of days ago that chicken breast grown by one of the top companies doing this work in Israel, Future Meat Technologies is down to about a $1.70 per breast. Wow. So that's not being grown at massive scale that could like, you know, deliver food to every single supermarket in the world. But this meat has gone down exponentially in price. 
that's what's kind of made this so interesting. That's what made actually reporting this book so interesting because the space was changing so much while I was doing the reporting and doing the writing that I almost had to go back and revise parts of the book that had already been finished just to keep up with like the news. I mean, it really did go from like more than a million dollars down to like half a million dollars down to $20,000 down to a couple of hundred dollars in the matter of a couple of years. And that's only going to continue dropping as these companies start building out bigger facilities that are able to grow meat at scale. Because at that time, it was just happening one bioreactor, two bioreactors in a single laboratory. Now they have not laboratories, but sort of food production facilities that might have 10, 15, 20 bioreactors or more that can be churning out this meat. You can't go through one 24-hour period and not see a Beyond Burger or you know some sort of protein that is not the traditional protein from an animal. And there are myriad reasons why I think there is a certain section of the population, you're proof positive, that we are sort of moving towards this alternative way of eating. And some of it, as you mentioned, is climate change, animal cruelty, the list goes on and on. But I wonder what you think is the prominent reason why the move towards cultivated or cultured meat is, is here to stay, or do you not think it's here to stay? I think that there's a lot still to learn about just how climate-friendly growing cultured meat actually is. I mean, that was sort of the promise of this field when it first started. But to be quite honest, like these companies have not produced a publicly available, what's called a life cycle analysis of an at scale production facility to sort of show what are the energy inputs? How much less energy do we use? Not just energy, but water and other things too, that we use to produce this meat. They're in a tough spot too, because it's like to do that in a laboratory is much different than in a full scale production facility. So I think that like, we'll be seeing something like that soon, I hope. But right now, what I think is the most compelling reason to consider cultured meat is definitely the climate. The meat production industry is responsible for a tremendous, almost a quarter of all you know, global warming gases. And I think chief among those is methane, which, which itself is interesting because it sort of goes into the atmosphere and then holds heat in for a lot longer than just like carbon. To, to think of the massive amount of waste that we expend, I mean, it takes six pounds of animal feed to produce one pound of beef. It's like three and a half pounds of animal feed to produce one pound of pork and two pounds of feed to produce one pound of chicken. Wow. All of that takes a lot of energy because we're growing all that grain in fields, right? To produce less food than what we actually were growing in the first place. And that takes a lot of energy and has a climate impact as well. And I just think that when you're staring down the situation that we're staring down from a climate perspective, will cell cultured meat alone be like a magic key to the future? No. But does it have a role to play? I think it absolutely could. You're thinking way too simply about this if you're thinking of it as a black and white issue, because think also about the fact that, and COVID really brought this out. Think of all the COVID cases that happened inside meatpacking plants. I mean, this is a labor issue as well. And who's who's mostly working in meatpacking plants? It's you know, a lot of those people are lower income, people of color, migrants. The meat system, the food system, the meat system is massive and it touches so many aspects of our lives. And, you know, it is bigger than just thinking, I'd like to eat a cow because that cow comes from somewhere. It's killed by someone. It's taken apart by somebody, packaged by somebody. The fuel that goes into just shipping it from a packaging plant to a grocery store is also something to consider. I mean, the meat system touches 
so many aspects of our lives that, you know, we have the privilege to not think about a lot, especially in this country. We asked Chase Purdy what he thinks about the future of cultured meat. When will we actually see it in grocery stores? Here is the reality. You can buy this at one restaurant in Singapore right now. Right now in the Middle East, in the UAE, one company is building a production facility to create cell-cultured meat. And right here in the U.S., the FDA and the USDA have been working for years together and with stakeholders in this field, not just cell-cultured meat companies, but also big meat manufacturers together working to outline a regulatory framework to get cell-cultured food products out into the market. It was as recently as mid-November that the two government agencies were collecting public comments and ideas around what the labeling should be for these products once they're available. Like what on the package do you have to call this so the consumers know what they're buying? So given the fact that the U.S. government decided back in October as well to pump $10 million into federal funding toward research of this, uh, like right now the National Institute for Cellular Agriculture exists at Tufts University. I think approval from the agencies is coming in short order. I think approval could come as soon as sometime in 2022. Now, that doesn't mean that the day that approval comes, you're going to see it the next day in grocery stores. It'll probably trickle out restaurants here, restaurant there, and then finally kind of maybe grocery stores in several years down the line. But I do think that you're not very far from being able to buy self-cultured meat products and eating them. and, And I think that they will taste I think they'll taste as good as a Beyond Meat burger, if not better. I guess that brings the the big question that I've been dying to ask the whole time. How'd it taste? The cultured meat that I've tasted has been pretty good. I will say that the favorite that I had was definitely, as most things are when they taste great, it was breaded and fried. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, But I mean, yeah, I had um, duck chorizo tacos. I had chicken tenders. I've had bites of beef. You know, I will say that what I had toward the end of my book reporting process was better than what I had at the beginning of my book reporting process, just because of the leaps and bounds that the, you know, food developers had made in in the process of getting this food out. So yeah, it tasted good. I'll be excited to try a sort of whole cut. Like I would love to try chicken breast. I would love to try crab someday. I mean, I hope I get to. (laughs) That was Chase Purdy. His book is Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. Now, before we go, our producer Robin Doyen-Aiken and I thought we'd dip our toes into the waters of alternative protein. So I invited her to my kitchen. You'll get our hot take on chocolate chip cookies made with green banana flour. But first, it's Grasshopper Taco Tuesday. Who's taking the first bite? Let's do it together. All right, do it together. So on our taco shell, we have a white flour tortilla shell with some of our grasshoppers. It's probably two ounces of grasshoppers on there. I added a spoonful of our homemade adobo sauce done with mole, and then we've topped it with some cilantro and a little bit of the salsa. And now we're rolling it up. Robin's trying to make it as small as she possibly can. He, I'm telling you, he put so many grasshoppers on mine. <laughs> Let's do it. Gra- okay. Cheers. Cheers. I think it's pretty good. Mm. <laughs> Very crunchy. You know, there's nothing like gross feeling in my mouth or anything. No. A lot of flavor. Bright. They're seasoned with adobo, mm-hmm. right, already. Right. So I do get a little smokiness and just there's crunchiness mm-hmm. in my mouth. It wasn't the most delicious thing I've ever had. It also wasn't the worst thing right. I've ever tasted. I'm eating it and 
give me a few beers. I'd probably eat nine of these. I wouldn't think twice about it. <laughs> but I do think the mental part of it is still there as we're eating this. Like as I'm chewing it, I'm going, I'm chewing on a grasshopper. It's the fear of once I'm done eating all the delicious things in with the grasshoppers, of having a piece of that grasshopper still in my mouth. And then I find it and I'm like freaked out by it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Totally. I have the same experience happening in my head too. Unlike you, I don't think that a few beers would help me eat <laughs> multiple grasshopper tacos, but... um, It's, it's not awful. <laughs> All right. What's let's, next? Let's move on. We'll move this aside. So, Robin, have you ever heard of green banana flour? I hadn't heard of it until you told me that it was an emerging future food. It's one of the most sustainable flours we have. It's gluten-free. It's vegan. GMO-free, the one I particularly I bought. It's literally made from unripe bananas. The amount of green bananas when they're shipping that go into the garbage, or I'm air quoting, the trash pile, is extraordinary. It's, it's hundreds of tons per shipment. There's a company that will take these now and dry them and make green banana flour out of it, which is a big thing in Nigeria and other African countries where they use this on a regular basis. This is now going to become part of my culinary repertoire. This is going to be, I predict, in our country, a regular thing very, very soon because green banana flour functions way more like a regular flour as opposed to a gluten-free flour, an alternative flour we would use. People will wonder, does it taste like banana? Great question, and we're going to find that out now. Yeah. I made these delicious chocolate chip cookies out of this. That didn't add other flours to it. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I think you should try one, Robin. There is a little bit of a banana-y flavor. It's not super punch you in the face with banana, but... You get the banana bread thing off of it. It's like a banana bread chocolate chip cookie. Mm -hmm. If I were a gluten-free eater, this would be a perfectly good cookie for me. There are no exotic insects happening over here. It's just an alternative flour. <laughs> well, I'm not gluten-free. and I'm, I like these cookies. I'd make these again, actually. I think they're pretty damn good. Green banana flour is something that's going to be in my diet, in my repertoire. It's delicious. It is a great substitute, almost one-to-one -one for regular flour. And um, I think if you haven't tried it, give it a try. You can buy it on Amazon. It's, it's good stuff. You just heard Chef Plum and Robin eating grasshopper tacos and chocolate chip cookies made with green banana flour. Visit our website for Plum's cookie recipe, ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyenakin and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week.